Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. At Lawned Abbey last month, Dame Hilary Mantel and Professor Dermot McCulloch reflected on the life of Thomas Cromwell and his place in the Reformation. They were speaking at an event to mark the 900th anniversary of Lawned Abbey, which Cromwell was fond of visiting. In part two, we hear the conversation between them. Introduced and moderated by the Bishop of Brixworth, John Holbrook. Dermot and Hillary are going to remain seated for, for their conversation, which essentially is a private conversation with 400 people listening in. <laughs> First question. Reference has been made to Cromwell's faith. Is there evidence of what he actually believed rather than kind of political expediency? I have taken him from the beginning of my work to be a real evangelical, not disposing his faith for simple political expediency because it would have been more expedient to do the other thing. Uh, He took risks. He didn't make his life easy. Dermot will now supply you with chapter and verse to that (laughs) generality. Because, you see, what I do is I have an instinct about something. Or, let us say I uncover a fact. And then I see a phrase before me in the gloom. And I rush after that phrase I'm going to make. And I forget to take the geographical coordinates of the ground I was standing on when I discovered um, the fact that led me to that intuition. So my process through the books has been learning to footnote myself. And I'm still not as good as it as I should be. So often I can only say to people, to readers, well, I'm convinced that such a thing was the case. And then I go to Dermot and he comes up with the proof. (laughs) Well, (laughs) Professor Footnote. Right, yes, I'll do my job as the footnotes. Uh, The the important thing is, uh, as Hilary said, is that Trommel did things which no cynical calculating politician would do. He took risks for the sake of religion. I gave you one, that the the link with Zurich is an extraordinary thing to do. England had no political contacts with Zurich, no trade links. There there was nothing uh, expedient in that and a huge amount of danger. I mean, brief history lesson. We're we're here for history, aren't we? Uh, the, The trouble about us, you English, is that you, <laughs> Scotsman, is that you've forgotten that the Reformation had two great Protestant strands which disagreed with each other vehemently. One was Lutheran, and the other is what has become called Reformed, with a capital R. Uh, and so you can either have a Lutheran Reformation or a Reformed Reformation, and England's Reformation was, was Reformed. No Lutheran uh, lasting element in it at all. And that is thanks to this Zurich link, And it is so dangerous to go down that path in the reign of Henry VIII because Henry loathed Zurich for what he would regard as heresy, which is to say that when you take bread and wine and do the right things and say the right actions over them, they do not become the body and blood of Christ. They are symbols only. And Henry burned people for thinking that. And Thomas Cromwell linked this country to the people who thought that. Uh, So in that sense, Henry killed him for the right reason. He was a heretic. Yes, he was. Um, Bang to rights there. Bang to rights, yes. (laughs) But he also left people in place who would take it on. First, those young men. Some of them became bishops in the Church of Elizabeth I and kept the Zurich link going until their deaths in the 1580s and 90s. So that's one big link. And that young man uh, who came to... Uh, Oxford from Zurich, Rudolf Gwalter by name, became the next chief pastor of the city of Zurich and survived till 1575. So that really embedded the Church of England into the Reformed Reformation. Then lots of other things happened with which I will not bore you. 
uh, to create Anglicanism. But that's, Anglicanism is not the English Reformation. It's about a century later. So Thomas Cromwell's Reformation is this really quite hard-nosed uh, reformed Protestant Reformation. And at the heart of the, of the Protestant Reformation, there was a rediscovery and a re-emphasis on the scriptures. Can either of you comment on Cromwell's view of the English scriptures and the project to translate it into uh, understandable English? Well, yeah, we, we, where would you start? I think you'd start with the, the rather embarrassing beginning of Fox's Book of Martyrs biography of Thomas Cromwell, uh, which begins with Thomas Cromwell going to Rome on a mission to the Pope for the Guild of Our Lady of Boston. And it's a picturesque story, and he gets a new indulgence from the Pope for the Guild by uh, bringing some musicians along and some English jellies and <laughs> giving them to the Pope, the Pope's charm, so he signs the indulgence or sticks a seal on it. And that's it. And of course, Fox very embarrassed by this story, but to get him through the embarrassment. He says that uh, Archbishop Cranmer's secretary told him that Cromwell, during the course of the long journey to Rome, had taken up Erasmus's new Latin translation of the New Testament. And that's what started him on the Reformation road. So he's fast, if, I, I think that's probably true. There's no reason for Cromwell to make this up. And that begins the fascination with scripture translation, because Erasmus's translation is you know, the new way of looking at the Bible. It's a new way of looking at the Latin, which can then be translated into English, which his mate, who I mentioned, Miles Coverdale, is one of the crucial people involved. William Tyndall is another friend of Thomas Cromwell, and uh, Cromwell tried to save him from his death in the Low Countries. So you, you can see him building up to the, the biggest deceit for Henry VIII of all Cromwell's deceits, which is to get an official translation of the Bible um, promulgated by the king's authority, and it is mostly by William Tyndall, who, uh, at whose death the king had connived. And the king clearly never realised that. And, and, and so it's necessary to put another name on it to disguise the fact that it is basically Tyndall's mm. work. And this whole story of the printing of, of the Bibles is, is intensely dramatic. The, um, they were printing in Paris because of the printers there were so good, they were so fast, and then the French swoop in and confiscate the sheets. And that's a disaster. And then there's all sorts of intrigue to try and get them back. And it really is... Uh, and Cromwell's own money is in this, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he uses the fact that the, uh, the English had confiscated a French ship. Yes. And the French were desperate to get it back. And he kept hanging on and hanging on and hanging on until he got those Bible pages. And then completed it very symbolically in the former dissolved Franciscan friary in central London. Yeah, what a symbol of reformation that is. I had great difficulty grappling with this very, very complex affair mm. of the French ship. Yeah. And in the end, I had to just... It came down to a paragraph. Yes, I noticed that. I, <laughs> <laughs> I spent weeks trying to understand it. Mm. And then I thought, well, in the end, even if I understand it, my reader won't. Yeah. And sometimes... I think that's what novelist has to do. You, you just, you have to cut through somehow. The, the greatest, uh, the greatest phrase in either history or novels, I think, is TMI. You know, too much information. Yes. And yes. Television producers love that phrase, TMI. Yes. yes. Keep the script simple. And John Fox. Now this is so interesting because. If you haven't read John Fox lately, I, I recommend you do so. It's a great read. There's not only uh, Thomas Cromwell going to Rome and tempting the Pope with um, the Englishman singing a three-part song and jellies. There's also the story of how the bear sat on a bear escape from bear baiting sat on the secretary of Archbishop Cranmer. <laughs> and the book he was carrying was cast into the river, taken up by the bearwood. 
who then threatened to ruin Thomas Cromwell by means of this book. And Thomas Cromwell solved this problem by, as it were, body slamming the Bearwood <laughs> and wrenching the book from him. Now, can you imagine, as a novelist, how hard I tried to get episodes <laughs> like this into my fiction? But you run up against the frontiers of credibility. <laughs> and then, you know, I started to ask myself, do we all believe John Fox just when we want to? And don't believe him when we don't like what he's saying. And I worked on that for quite a long time, but then in the end, I wobble back to very great respect. Yeah, absolutely. I think I virtually always believe him. Yes. What I listen for are the silences, because he'll yes. leave things out. He's an honest, scrupulous historian. He, he actually will print embarrassing yes. material, but some of it he will leave out. And you see it in his background papers, which yes. we have in the British uh, Library. So you can see the anecdotes and stories he didn't use because they're embarrassing. And he was a Boston man, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah. And he knew people who'd known Cromwell. Mm. So you have that very close link. Mm. And is it Fox who tells us about the singing children in Cromwell's household? Oh, I can't um, remember the singing children. There were... Yeah. He had... Um, a little choir um, in uh, sang at services in his household in the spring of 1540 when things were really wobbling he gave them all a present of 20 shillings and sent them home to their families and it's a kind of sign that he thinks things are going wrong. I think that's in John Fox. But there you are, you see, I'm doing it. <laughs> I've, I've forgotten how I know that. Well, forgot I've forgotten too. <laughs> <laughs> now, when we were having coffee earlier, they had a wonderful kind of piece of historical detective work regarding an illegitimate daughter. Yes. Now, this you do make something more of in, in, in the book, in your book. She's a shadowy presence. Jane, um, probably uh, she, she dates very probably from the period after his wife's death, uh, which would be the late 1520s. Very unusually for a man with a young family, he didn't marry again. But somewhere there's a liaison and there's Jane. Just this little fugitive presence on the record. And a, a historian can say, we know this, this, and this about Jane, and that's all we know. But a novelist can't not know who her mother is. Mm. Because Cromwell knows. <laughs> and I have to know what he knows. Mm. And no... Fiction, you know, there's no technical way, there's no sleight of hand that can remove that problem from me. So I thought, well, okay, so these are my choices. You can't have a daughter without a mother. I can omit her altogether, which would be the simple thing. But then, look, this is a man who had three children he lost his two daughters to the sweating sickness. He lost his wife. Gregory remained. And he's got this shadowy little daughter. Am I going to be so heartless as to excise all daughters from the record? So I thought, right, make a plot. For once, put aside your conscience and act as a novelist. Make something up. And so I placed a liaison back in the time he spent in Antwerp before he came home to England. So he has, in effect, an Antwerp wife, as they call them later. And in my fiction, he comes home to England. He doesn't know Anselma. 
is carrying a child. And then at a crucial point, um, much later in the narrative, she turns up, a young woman, she's come to look up her father. She's heard he's in a spot of trouble and she wants to see him before it all goes pear-shaped. So in she walks with handily for me a set of very dangerous religious opinions. <laughs> so I made her, as it were, serve a purpose. And this is my biggest and boldest invention in the course of the three books. But I think you will readily understand why I, I couldn't, I, I needed a mother. Yeah, I think that's one of the best illustrations of the difference between history and novels. Uh, and I, I say that in all seriousness, it shows you the difference of our crafts. They overlap, but in the, uh, on the extremes of the overlap, you're doing two different things. I had the, the fragments you talked about. Yes. I had to place us chronologically, which led to something rather interesting. I think there's a wobble, an emotional wobble in his life after Wolsey's death, after his wife's death. Uh, and it's in that period that this daughter fits chronologically. Uh, and I can't say who the mother is. I simply don't know. I can say something much more complicated. The TMI thing is that this daughter actually married a Roman Catholic recusant in the 1540s after Cromwell's death. And I don't think it's anything to do with the Cromwell story. Uh, but that's, that's something else in the story which I had to throw in because it's yes. true, uh, which a, a novel would find complex. You can do the, the far more interesting thing of placing this uh, phenomenon, this daughter, in a bit of the story which is vacant anyway. Yes. Uh, and, and you can make something of that vacancy. Uh, and that's a glorious freedom which you have. Yes. And I've always got to say, might have, could have, uh, to show that that's the health yeah. warning. To say, you don't, you don't need to believe that. You can never do that, could you? It, no, it sounds, it sounds uh, feeble in a novel to say, might have, should have. You wouldn't. Dermot, can I push you into the might have, may have been arena? One of our questioners asks, essentially, what might have happened if Jane <coughs> Seymour had survived the birth of... What might have Edward. happened? Uh, if Jane Seymour survives, then the Seymour-Crummel nexus is absolutely all-powerful. Mm. Uh, they are behind the, the beloved Prince Edward. They go on, they, they forge forwards past the old king's death, they run everything. But the curious thing is that that's what happened, minus Thomas Cromwell. And it seems to me that you have to read the history of the reign of King Edward VI as the triumph of the Cromwellians. They kick out all his enemies, Gardner, Risley. They're all humiliated, marginalized. The reign is one of very rapid progress. Elizabeth's reign, there's still the sort of fading scent of Cromwell there in like, people like William Cecil, Lord Burley. The, these are very minor Cromwell protégés who then become very powerful. So that's one of the reasons that I, I see Thomas Cromwell as really at the heart of the English Reformation, that it works. But the, the, the death of Queen Jane is our real setback, and that's really what did for Thomas, I think. Uh, well, I, 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 would, I would say the same. If, if Jane had lived and perhaps had more children, then Gregory's marriage with Elizabeth Seymour was obviously a roaring success, judging by the number of children and the rapidity with which they were produced. Um, it would have entrenched the Cromwells. There was not only Gregory Cromwell, but his nephew Richard Cromwell, um, quite a big player uh, at, at court, and it would have made them Dynasts, wouldn't it? Well, they were dynasts. I mean, it seems to me we have to read Cromwell's career like Henry VIII's. Oh, the, yes. At the centre of it, mm. they both want to found a dynasty, mm. and they behave badly in the process, it, because this is the ultimate goal of a Tudor statesman. And Gregory, of course, has been horribly misunderstood yeah. through the years, written off as a perfect fool largely through misdating, people thinking that he was much um, 
older than he was. So taking the letters that he produced as a little child as the letters of a teenager. And uh, does this go back to Merriman? It's before Merriman. It's a, it's a mid-Victorian historian who misstated the crucial letters right. and then actually recanted. But the, really? the, yeah, the, yes. the mistake had already got in the yes. his, historian's memory and wasn't corrected at all. Uh, really, well, frankly, till me. Yes. <laughs> yeah. and, <laughs> Sorry. And, and, you know, again, this is interesting when you look at the way we work because... I began to find Gregory's traces, and I began to come across him, and, you know, nobody says he's a fool. Everyone seems to like him. He's always the gentle and virtuous Gregory. He crops up here, crops up there. Even the Duke of Norfolk has a good word for him, a wise, quick piece, he and says. To and Sir Thomas More. Uh, indeed, oh, yes. and so I began to think, we're getting Gregory wrong. But you see, I didn't have the data to go on to say to historians who included uh, R.C. Merriman, the editor of Thomas Cromwell's letters, who was quite hostile to Gregory. I didn't have a place to stand to say to them, look, you're all wrong. So what I did was I very surreptitiously started reducing his age. <laughs> but I didn't quite have the courage of my convictions. I didn't reduce it enough. So if I had had the good fortune that Dermot had written before my novels, um, that would have been a big change because I would have... I would then have had chapter and verse for my, my strong feeling that we were getting Gregory all wrong. And he was, you see, after Cromwell's death, he didn't, he somewhat withdrew from public life. He came to Lord, but he appeared at court. He sat in Parliament. He was still a player. Mm. And he was, Gregory was educated like a prince. The boy's education never stopped. He was here, he was there, he was going to learn this with such a gentleman, then he's across the country following another gentleman. And he set up to follow his father. Yeah, I, I, I don't think he was no. that bright, but he wasn't a fool. You know, he, he, he was a sort of cheerful sportsman, utterly charming. And now yes. we have two pictures of him. And I, I thank two people in my, the introduction to my book. One is Hilary, and the other is a, a, a lovely Australian lady called Terry Fitzgerald, who I've never yeah. met, but we have corresponded. And what Terry did, she sits in a bungalow in Australia and surfs the net. Yeah. And in the course of surfing the net, she found two Holbein miniatures, one in the Netherlands and one, by a long story now, in a vault in Moscow, both labelled unknown Tudor young man. And it's quite clear that they're the same Tudor young man, and clues within them make it is utterly clear that these are Gregory. Yes. And suddenly we've got a visual image. You see the image here, the images are in my book. And uh, suddenly we've got a picture of Gregory, who is like a pretty version of Thomas Cromwell. <laughs> yeah, he's got the same nose, uh, um, same curiously hooded eyes. So that's a family thing. And yet we know, as Hillary said, that he, he, was, he was charming, uh, too charming. There was some appalling scandal in 1538-9, which is a major, again, point, point of the biography. Uh, and yet Elizabeth took him back. And the, the affectionate letters from Elizabeth, they're, they're clearly genuinely affectionate, despite the appalling thing he'd done in Sussex in 1539. Uh, You're going to have to tell us what it was. <laughs> Well, the funny thing is, we don't know, but it is... <laughs> oh. you see, Hillary, again? would you like to make it up? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I imagine he was appallingly rude to a bishop. <laughs> and refused to apologise. But Dermot thinks there's more I, th I think it's sex. And I think, yeah. <laughs> I think he had had uh, a very torrid affair with a gentleman or a nobleman's wife. 
because the reason we know about this is that it, it entered the diocesan court of the Bishop of Chichester. So it's either got to be heresy or sex. Mm. And he shows no great sign of religious enthusiasm, so it's sex. <laughs> <laughs> The portraits turning up, mm. this was a great moment for me. I knew they must be there somewhere. But, you know, it's like, it's like Australia. It was there all the time. <laughs> Gregory was there all the time. It just took someone to say, unknown young man, I wonder. And then it all falls into place, it all fits. I think Rafe Sadler turned up as well, yeah. persuasively, mm. whilst I was in the course of writing Wolf Hall. And that was, again, that was a great moment because when I saw that pencil sketch, the Holbein sketch, yeah. I was just convinced, yeah. yes. And then identifying the great portrait of Elizabeth Seymour in yes. Toledo. It's a wonderful Holbein. And you look at her, she's about 20 in the picture. In other words, she's married to Gregory already. And you think, I'm not going to mess with you. Yes. <laughs> and I think Thomas thought, yes, this is an adversary worthy of my steel, this young lady. Gosh. And that's all, it just shouts out of the picture at you. Totally different question. Somebody asks, do you think Cromwell had a sense of humour? I think he did. I think it was a black one. Mm. And your Cromwell has exactly that. The, 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 the humour I spotted is your, yes. your Thomas's humour. Black, yes, fierce, can be a bully. Yes. But, uh, yeah, and, and there's a tremendous sense of irony in his career, isn't it? I mean, the, 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 the Lord Cromwell of Wimbledon. Yes. What a way of annoying the English nobility. <laughs> yes, yes, he's enjoying himself. Yeah. Um, and there are the cardinal's chuffs flying year after year in the teeth of his opponents. And I, I think um, he lived life, I think, with considerable relish. Mm. As his contemporaries said, he had plenty stomach. He would take on a situation. He would make a difficult thing work. He had a tremendous appetite for life, I think. So different from the picture of the passionless bureaucrat uh, that was drawn by biographers uh, and popular historians in time past. I cannot find a trace of that man. No, passionless, absolutely wrong, isn't it? <clears throat> and the problem is that R.B. Merriman, who you mentioned, yes. who, who created a, a, not a bad edition of all the letters we've got, also wrote a biography at the beginning of it, which is just so stupid and unimaginative and imperceptive. And people yes. took that. Even Geoffrey Elton used yes. it. And there's the bureaucrat, uh, the, the cynical, heartless yes. bureaucrat. It's, it's just nonsense. And that work on the letters will never be done again, need never be done. But to everyone who takes it up, it comes with that biography, with his footnotes, with all his um, scholarly <coughs> authority. And that, unfortunately, has been people's way in, scholars' way in to Cromwell very often. Mm. It was essential to get back beyond that. I dreaded taking Merriman down from the shelves sometimes. Yes. Mm. I, I, why, yeah. why would a, bio, a, a historian devote himself with such meticulous scholarship to the career of a man he apparently hated? Yeah, yeah. Oh, you do it with Hitler. But, yes. Uh, <laughs> most people are a mixture of both, and yes. I suspect biographers normally not exactly fall in love with their subject, but look forward to an evening out with them. Oh, yes. You expect to find them interesting. Yes. Find them interesting, fascinating, yes. And Merriman uh, didn't find him fascinating. And also, you have to find a measure of ambiguity, because that's what keeps you going. You don't want an easy subject where you can ask your questions and supply your own answers. <coughs> you want someone who puzzles you year after year with 
fertile creative inconsistencies. Mm. And I think Cromwell is a prime example of that. Mm. Absolutely, yeah. So does he surprise you by how he sometimes behaves when you're writing your books? I never knew whether it was Cromwell who was surprising me or I was surprising myself. <laughs> That's the problem with being a novelist. Well, uh, I was surprised by those large conclusions I outlined for you this, earlier this morning. Those yes. were not what I expected. Those were things which came out with the historical logic of the sources I was looking at. Uh, and that's what Geoffrey Elton always told me, you pile your sources up and you let them speak. You don't impose something on you. don't come to them with a preconceived idea. And people have done that for generations and it wasn't the right way to go about things. You were hinting in conversation earlier about Risley and some uncertainty as to whether Risley actually wrote most of the material attributed to him. Well, no, he didn't. I mean, Risley is this servant and ultimately sort of e e e Iago figure in Thomas Cromwell's career. He's probably responsible for his downfall with the king. Uh, and he's always been portrayed from Merriman onwards as the constant servant through the career. And as I read the letters, I, I thought, no, no, actually, no, they're not, they're surely not his. His handwriting is a bit similar to Risley's, but it's not the same until you get to a certain point where the, Risley is there in yes. the story, 1536. But everything before that, attributed to Risley in the great collection called Letters and Papers, Henry VIII, Foreign and Domestic, these weren't Risley. They were one of um, Cromwell's real servants of that early period, Stephen Vaughan. And they'd just been stuck together by these Victorian editors, and no one ever questioned it. No, Risley wasn't part of the early story, but he, he's become, in your, in your parallel universe, Cromwell, he's there from the beginning, and that's fine. Because I didn't know this, and I followed the editor of Letters and Papers, the great compendium of um, the rain from, which is our starting point, but contains any number of errors, most of which Dermot does run to earth. Um, I followed Letters and Papers, where it says, this is Risley's handwriting, this is Risley's handwriting. You think, what a busy young man. And he appears to be there very early days. So my puzzle then was, but where did Risley come from? How, I mean, I know where he came from in a literal sense. I know about his family. But how does he get to be a Cromwell insider? And I couldn't account for that because most people carried over in a way from the Wolsey household, uh, which was a, a vast network of influence through England, but not Risley, and therefore I really had to go to work on him as a novelist. Um, I had to bring him in early because it seemed to me he was there early. I was wrong. I didn't know this till I read Dermot's footnotes. Um, well, I have to live with that. You weren't wrong. You created a story in which he had a rational place. Yes, I, I found a reason. <coughs> for him to breeze in to Austin Friars and present himself. And everyone is, what's this? Who's this? Do we trust him? Not exactly, but we get used to him. And so he snakes his way in. Now, from the novelist's point of view, it's not a bad thing to have done because, as Dermot said, in the end, Risley matters a lot. Is the engine, one, one of the engines of Cromwell's downfall. So perhaps from the fictional point of view, it wasn't a bad thing that I carried him through the whole narrative. All the same, I wish I'd got it right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're very quick to, to credit each other, and, and in a sense, you've just done that to Dermot. I mean, Dermot, you, you were saying earlier that your rethinking Anne Boleyn, largely owing to, to the inspiration of, of Hillary planting an idea that you'd not kind of expected to see. Not, well, it, more that I had had the germ of this idea, but what reading, particularly Wolf Hall and, and, and then Bring Up the Bodies, gave me was the nerve to follow it through. 
because it goes right against yes. all the orthodoxy of historians I respect and admire, particularly Eric Ives, who wrote a brilliant biography of Anne uh, about 20 years ago. And his Grummel and Anne are still allies. There's a chapter about it. And I thought, oh, God, am I going to tackle Eric, who, a man who I've respected all my life? Well, I went through the chapter, and it just didn't work. Eric had simply assumed a traditional story and made things about it. It's one amazing footnote where he, he says, well, of course, there are not many letters between uh, Anne and Cromwell, but that's presumably because they chatted face-to-face -face all the time. I thought, no, no, that's, that's just squirming. That is not <laughs> the way. Evidence from absence. Abs abs exactly, evidence from absence. No, it just doesn't work. And, and then you see the real story, and, and just the big outlines of it, which should have been there for all of us, that Grummel's career is held back under Anne. It is not advanced. And so, as soon as she's dead, whoosh, he's away. He's a baron, he's a knight, he's Lord Privy Seal. That should have told all of us, and it didn't. One of my, uh, th thank you, one of my bits of learning is that Anne of Cleves wasn't s as unattractive as we've been led to believe. Mm. This was what baffled everyone at court. Um, they, Anne's portrait had been painted by Holbein, who dare not lie. Um, it was probably not true, as Thomas Cromwell said, that she exceeded the Duchess of Milan, <laughs> another candidate, as the golden sun does the silver moon. I think he was laying it on a bit there. <laughs> um, uncharacteristic flash of poetry. Um, but Anne came on her journey the English noblemen, including Gregory Cromwell, went over to Calais, England's outpost on, in continental Europe, to receive her. And, okay, there's the language barrier, but she's learning English very quickly. Holbein had not lied. No one accused him of having lied. She was a perfectly nice-looking woman, and they liked her. Um, she would be, um, Lady Lyle said, um, the governor of Calais' wife, easy to serve and please. And the general opinion was he's on to a winner. Mm. And then she arrives and Henry, instead of waiting for the court reception, uh, which has been arranged at vast expense and with great trouble, he decides to ride down the country and meet her on her way to nourish love, he says. And they meet, and it's a disaster. And I have my own account of this moment, as you would imagine. And it seems to have been, from that moment, Henry was trying to get out of it. Um, even before the ceremony had taken place, before they went to bed together, and he was blaming the people, uh, notably William Fitzwilliam, who'd gone over to Calais, saying, why didn't you tell me? But they were saying, well, tell you what? There's nothing wrong with her. So there was a period when, well, frankly, to cut a long story short, no one knew what was going on. But Henry confided in Cromwell, which put Cromwell later in, uh, and he wrote, he obviously made some kind of record at the time, Cromwell's letters from the tower, then written at Henry's request, detailed the whole sad story of how the marriage unraveled. And the extraordinary thing is that we have not just Holbein's portrait of Anne, but we have a portrait uh, done in Cleves by Cleves people of Anne. It's mm. now in St. John's College, Oxford, actually. And it's very similar to the Holbein. So Holbein wasn't lying about what she looked like. And both of them present a, a, a woman who's perfectly pleasant, as you say. And then everyone liked her. 
And after she decided she would be the king's sister, hurrah, and never have to marry anyone else again, she stayed in England and everyone liked her till 1557 when she died. And everyone said, what a, what a nice woman she'd be. And of course, she learned English very quickly. She wasn't a fool. I think she'd had a tremendously dull upbringing. Yes, the court of Cleves. They all went to bed at 8 o'clock. You know. <laughs> and, and actually, one of the ambassadors says, um, you can't even get a drink. You have to go and look for someone to get the key to unlock the cellar. Um, and... The German ladies, they learn no music. That would have been considered a bit fast. And they didn't play cards. What they did was needlework. And Henry, of course, was used to uh, a more cultured media. But I, I don't think that was, was the problem. No, no. Um, I, in fact, what the gentlemen say in, um, in my novel is, well... She, she's going to have a really good time. It will be a whole new life for her. And they're looking forward to showing her some of the ordinary pleasures of existence. But we never actually get that far. So I think, um, and of course, much has been made by novelists, amongst others, of the language barrier. Henry's court was full of people who spoke every language going. And Anne does seem, even, even when she came to Calais, she seems to have been making great efforts to learn English manners, English customs, and rather touchingly, um, Fitzwilliam and Gregory and the entourage taught her the king's favourite card games, <laughs> so they would have some occupation other than in the bedchamber. Um, and she picked these up very quickly. And the whole thing, I, I will reveal what I think happened, <laughs> is that I think the moment they came face to face, Henry saw shock on Anne's face, oh. just for a moment. Mm -hmm quickly concealed with a deep curtsy when she realised who this old man was. Um, but I think one moment of shock, one flinch, one moment of pulling back, is never erased. And that's what a novelist can do. <laughs> and a historian can't. But what, what a historian can say is that Henry VIII's taste in women is just inexplicable. <laughs> and then provide evidence for that, which is that you, know, you have this happy marriage to Catherine of Aragon for a quarter of a century. Then you get Anne, Anne Boleyn, who clearly was not beautiful. I mean, you, you look at the surviving... Portraits, which, of course, are not many because they're destroyed, but there's one uh, medal of her which shows this, this big hooky nose and rather, rather not attractive, a bit like a grumpy Elizabeth I, which is what you'd expect. This is Elizabeth's mother. And, and yet Henry's absolutely fascinated by her. And he's clearly fascinated by uh, an attraction, a sexual bond between them and the intelligence Mm -hmm. And uh, that's Anne. Then Jane is utterly different. Yes. Then Catherine Howard. Whoa, what about Catherine Howard? Well, 18-year-old good-time girl. <laughs> and I guess when you're 40-plus, uh, that's what you go to. It's a bit like buying a sports car, yes. isn't it? <laughs> Midlife crisis. And then... And then Catherine Parr, who's just a, a jolly nice lady who's, who's had plenty of sexual action in her time. And, uh, and yet has calmed through that and is the perfect um, auntie figure, really, for the king yes. and for his children. You might like to know that I managed to get all six wives yeah. into the book. <laughs> Somehow, even though my story stops in 1540, but I did find a, a walk-on part for Catherine Parr or Lady <laughs> Latimer, as she was then. Yeah. Thank you. We're delighted you've also managed to find space for Lorne. We all know why Lorne is so wonderful. What, what 
made it so attractive to Cromwell? I'm not sure we have the data on that, except wouldn't anyone find it attractive? <laughs> I mean, even now, we're in this blissful countryside, the quiet, the calm. I, I, I'm sure you're right, and, and the extract you read from us beautifully expresses that. It, it still remains puzzling. Why Leicestershire? They had, he had no connection with Leicestershire, mm. except that his first employer, major employer, was not actually Cardinal Wolsey, but the second Marquis of Dorset, uh, Henry Gray, is it Thomas Gray? Thomas Gray, isn't it? Thomas Gray, and who lived at uh, Bradgate's. And, and so for a brief moment, 1523-4, Cromwell had been up here. And then, he, of course, he, he went back to Lorne, this famous snow incident, which is uh, in his Woolsey employ. And I, I just speculate, now here I go beyond being a historian, that it may be precisely what you said, that he, he wants a retreat at the end of his political career, which takes him before the political career when he was just moving wardrobes round for the Dowager Marchioness of Dorset. Yes. Uh, and it'll all be simple. Gregory will have his castle down in Kent. Thomas will have his nice retreat in this beautiful place. Uh, and perhaps the old prior uh, and canons around that he'd known in those innocent, simple days back in the 1520s. Yes, just as I say, in, in his fever, he thinks, that's where I'll go when all this is over, mm. as if it would ever be over. Yes. It wasn't mm. easy to retire from the service of Henry VIII. And by, the, by 1540, I think, Henry had also become an impossible man to work for, would you say? Yes. Oh, completely. Yes. You see, people talk a lot about the mistakes that a figure like Cromwell made. But I always ask my reader to stand in his shoes and say, working for Henry, how would you avoid those mistakes? Yeah. And under the pressure of events and without the benefit of hindsight. He disappointed the king. He alienated the senior earl in the Duke of Norfolk. How significant was the, the animosity between him and the Howard family? I would, I would plead guilty here to laying it on a bit thick because <laughs> I love the Duke of Norfolk. <laughs> It's, I just want him on the page all the time. He is such a wonderful character to write. And one of the first books I read um, was a near contemporary work, George Cavendish's Life of Cardinal Wolsey. George Cavendish was gentleman usher to Cardinal Wolsey. He was with him um, through his days of glory. Through his fall, he was at his deathbed. Cavendish wrote a few days, a few years later, but there isn't really a template for a biography. Um, so he wrote it like a novel. He did dialogue. And there's a wonderful a moment where Master Cromwell comes and says to the Cardinal, the Duke of Norfolk wants you to remove from the vicinity of the court and king. And if you don't get out of the way, Sharpish, he will come where you are and tear you with his teeth. <laughs> and that's the Duke of Norfolk. <laughs> to which Wolsey, in Cavendish's account, replied, Marry Thomas, time to be going. And <laughs> <laughs> there, you see, for the first time, I felt I was hearing their voices. Um, for me, um, Cavendish was wonderfully influential. Yeah. For a novelist, it has to, not reduce, but it has to be about personalities. These are what every reader will understand. So I certainly play up um, the temperamental differences 
But having said that, the rivalry, I think, is intense. <coughs> yes, and uh, I, I agree. The, the Duke is a fascinating character. He's very clever, very competent. Yes. And I think that's particularly why he resents this even cleverer, even yes. more competent politician sailing past him. He undoubtedly is a huge, huge snob. Uh, so that, uh, that the Howards are really actually nouveau riche. They've only been around for about 80 years or so. And uh, I think there's a keen sense of that in him. This is a parvenu. And my family are not parvenus. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. We are the heirs of Mowbray. We, 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 our dukedom goes back, our old earldom goes back, and then the dukedom comes along. So there, there is this in intense sense of rivalry of two clever people. He is also an intense hypocrite and player, and Crummel plays it up to that. So uh, half the time you think they're bosom buddies, and the, and the letters yes. say, oh, I'm so so fond of everything you've done, etc., etc. It's, it's all make-believe, and the gloves came off at the end. And, and, and a wonderful witness to um, uh, Norfolk's character is his duchess, from whom he was estranged and lived apart from her for many years who has a very active correspondence with Thomas Cromwell <laughs> and leaves us in no doubt of the Duke's false dealings and hypocrisy and he will speak as fair to his enemy as his friend, she says, and that about sums it up, I think. She's a wonderful character and, and writes in her own hand all these letters. It's terrible, yes. and she's terrible handwriting and they're very, very long. Yes. Uh, and I. I <laughs> A little of her went a long way, I think. Yes, he may have been tempted to say, give me a praise. Yeah. <laughs> but it, that, does, that actually lights up one of his personal characteristics, which I discovered bit by bit yes. as I read the letters. Dowagers get on with him very well. Oh, he's such a lady. He, 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 yeah, he really, is, he, he yes. really knows how mm. to charm ladies of a certain mm. age. And they love him. Dowager marchionesses with a lot, or, or just any, any lady. The other thing, he, he loves deplorable young men yes. who the rest of the world deplores. And I don't think there's anything particularly sleazy about that. I think they simply reminded him of himself when he was young. And many of them are good bets and quite a lot aren't. Yes, and he seems to think everybody deserves and needs a second chance. Mm. And <coughs> doesn't take other people's word for someone's bad character, but has a look at the boy himself and will uh, find him a job, try him out. And it's one of the uh, one of the things that must have made the Cromwell household a very lively place, mm. I imagine. Yeah. Mm. A lot of the questions are around passion and motivation. What what do each of you think really drove him? What were the passions of his? His life. What was he seeking to achieve? I think he was a bit of an education, 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 Mum. Yeah. He it seemed to be his belief, um, and in fact, in his injunctions, he said the clergy should preach that your children should be brought up in a trade or in good literature, and that would stop them falling into criminal ways. And what you're beginning to get is the idea that that generation will improve on what your father had, and the next generation will improve on that. Um, and I think his... Well, what would we say about a sense of, of social justice? I mean... There's Elton's wonderful um, book, um, Reform. Reform and Renewal. And Renewal. Yeah. Um, some people <coughs> think that Elton characterised him, but, but then you see Elton himself was a deeply conservative character, wasn't he? Mm -hmm. um, the Cromwellian revolution in government isn't a revolution in the political sense we generally mean it. But nevertheless, you can see, um, you can see a certain Orwellian radicalism there, I think. Mm. 
with the eye of faith. I say, <clears throat> I agree with all that. Three things, religious reformation. And I, thought, I think to start with, he thought Woolsey was going to be the way forward in yes. religious reformation. Then uh, it is uh, dynasty, dynasty. So Lorne is the symbol of his success. He left a Baron Crummel here. And the Baron's Crummel went on to the 16, 1680s. So that's hugely important. Uh, and then something we've not mentioned, which we ought to have done, Parliament. Yes. He's the first English statesman stroke politician to start his career in Parliament. He's an MP from, in the 1523 Parliament. And all the English Reformation is carried through by Parliament, and that's thanks to him. Yes. I mean, you had a time when Parliaments were called infrequently. They lasted a matter of weeks. They raised some money for the king, and they all went home to their chairs. But Cromwell made Parliament work hard. He kept it in session, and he drove through this enormous legislative program, which constituted the break with Rome. Um, and he, he therefore gave great authority to Parliament with consequences that last to our own day. Um, I, something else I was going to say as well, besides Parliament. I think the whole question of authority, of he was a king's man, he believed in strong government, in the king's government, in equality before the law, in good authority, which is the only guarantee of equity and justice in society. One of the things that brought Cromwell very much into conflict with characters like the Duke of Norfolk was this whole question of governance. Who should run England? And um, in particularly, say, the north of England, um, which was in revolt during um, the, the middle of the 1530s, who should actually govern? Well, in my book, I put it very simply. You know, Cromwell thinks it should be clever men. The Duke of Norfolk thinks it should be noble men. Mm. And I, I think yeah. that, that is one of the... That's one of the ways in which he looks to the future. Yeah. It's a question of ability, mm. not who, who your dad was. Yeah. Mm. Both of you were clearly fascinated by him and... and the uh, enjoyed engaging with him in different ways. Uh, very last question. Can I ask each of you to tell your favourite Cromwell story? <coughs> oh, well, I'll tell you my favourite Cromwell letter. Um, it's when Henry's searching for his fourth wife scouring Europe, looking at all available princesses, archduchesses, and so on. A young man called Philip Hobie from the Privy Chamber goes on mission to check out various princesses. And Cromwell tells him what he's to do when he meets these princesses. He obviously thinks Philip might mess it up, so he gives him precise instructions. <laughs> what you've got to do is make her think that you, Philip, have fallen in love with her. Because that, she will see the hopelessness of your passion. She'll feel so sorry for you. You have ready access any time you like. And it's so clever. It's so true. It would work. And you think, you dog. <laughs> <laughs> I was racking my brains are so much, isn't there? But I think I go back to George Cavendish. Yes. And the, the, the night when, uh, when it all looks desperate and Parliament is about yes. to start and the point of Parliament is to destroy the cardinal. And Cromwell was determined to become an MP in that parliament, the 1529 parliament. And he sets off in the driving rain on a November night to go to London from Isha. And he says, this is a, I will make or mar this night. And Cavendish says this is a favourite phrase. And you could, I, we did think of it, I thought of it as a subtitle to my book, make or mar. 
But yeah. that tells you so much. I will make a ma tonight. Yes, which was ever his saying, Cavendish says. Yeah. So that in, in one little proverb, as it were, or motto, uh, you have the man who will take a risk to gain his purpose. Dean Hillary, Professor McCulloch, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.